Good morning. Okay, let's try it again. Good morning. That's better. You guys sound a lot like me. Um, So uh, I'm sorry that you have to hear me for the next 45 minutes, but suck it up. Um, This morning, we're in the third week of a lesson series called Following Together, which is based in part off of a book by David Platt called Radical Together. And the overarching point of this book, and, and really the overarching point of this series, is this. How do we become more than just cultural Christians? I mean, how, how do we become more than just cultural Christians? In other words, rather than simply being Christians because maybe our parents were. Rather than simply becoming Christians because, well, we're in America and that's just kind of what people do. Or rather than just being Christians because we attend church every now and again. Our goal in this series is to become the kind of Christians that we see reflected in the pages of Scripture. And during this series, we've been using Romans chapter 12, verse 5 as our focus verse. It's going to come up on the screens. I'd like us all to recite this together. Here we go. (laughs) Sorry. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In this this verse, Paul says, in Christ, in other words, when we have accepted Christ as individuals, and we have accepted Christ as 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 a church family, we are brought together, we who are many, form one body. And that church, that group of individuals is called together. And each member works with all of the others to follow Christ and to make his name great in the world. And on January 6th of this year, I don't know about you, but that seems like a million years ago right now. But on January 6th of this year, is the first Sunday of the year, this church family, this church body, this one group of all the members did something that we have never, ever done before. We started the service with nothing. Some of you here remember that. We opened the doors, and all of you guys walked in. The big light matrix back here was off. We didn't do any wild stage lighting. There weren't any, even any instruments or a band on the stage. And the service began with two actors walking out on the stage in asking a series of questions designed to make us think. And there was a particular point in the script of that reading, if you will, or that, that, that challenging question monologue, so to speak, that challenged me very, very much personally. And I believe it challenged us as a church. Some of you might recall this, but what I want to do is I actually want to show you the script, or at least a piece of the script, of some of the stuff that was actually in that reading that morning. And I want us to think about it. It started like this, question, what do you really need to follow Jesus? What do you really need? And this is right out of the script. Do you need a building? Do you need a band? 
Do you need lights and sound? Do you need an entertaining pastor? Do you need money? Do you need stuff? What do you and what do I need to follow? And we started the year with these questions. And I think it's really important that we take some time to reconsider them now as we, as we kind of edge toward the end of the year. Because this is where we started this year. And we asked ourselves these questions. And, and here's the thing. I think if we actually look at these questions, and, and if, I were to, if I were to pull any one of you individually like into my office and I, was, and I would go down this list of questions, you would all know the correct answer. You would all know the correct answer to these questions because the correct answer is obvious. No, of course, we don't need really any of these things to follow Jesus. But I think it's fair to say that we often don't act like that. When you and I go to a church, and maybe, maybe, maybe you're a GNG person, but, but think about when you go to another church. Or maybe if you're not a GNG person and you, you've just, you, you're coming here for the first time and you're just kind of checking it out. Like, let me ask you a question. How do you evaluate the church experience that you have at that place? Do we not most invariably walk our way down many of these questions and go, hmm, did I like the music? I mean, did I really like it? I mean, how about the pastor? Was he engaging and fun? Did I really enjoy what he taught? Does the church look like it's doing well? I mean, is the building attractive? I mean, are the people in there, like, nice and fun? I mean, like, is this, is this not what we do? Is this not how we evaluate church? And here's the interesting thing. I don't think it's actually that different if you talk to pastors and church leaders and you read the books from the church growth experts. If you dig a little deeper into some of those things, I think you'll find that many in the American church think that we really need four things to do church. We really need four things to do church here in America. That's, I, I, I really believe that we, we, in many cases, think this. We need a place, first and foremost. Obviously, we need a place, right? And as far as possible, the bigger and more impressive, the better. I mean, the most recent statistics I could find were from 2014. But get this, in 2014, American churches spent $3.15 billion on church buildings. $3.15 billion on church buildings. And here's the crazy thing. That number is down 80% from 2002. 80% from 2002. But we not only need a place, right? We need some professionals. We need the charismatic teacher. We need the best singer. We need the attractive. We need the outgoing. And once we have those, well, we can have strong performances, right? Services full of music as loud and as fun as a rock show. Great artistic expression and services that are slick and fun and done in an hour. And finally, we need, we need some programs, right? 
We need ministries to serve people, to take care of kids, different programs for our professionals to run. Because, I mean, hey, we've hired them, so we might as well make them do something all week long. And the more top of the line and state-of-the-art those programs could be, the better. Well, guys, I want to address the obvious for a moment. There's nothing inherently wrong. There's nothing inherently biblically wrong about a church building, a church staff, church services, effective programming. We ourselves are sitting in a church building. Now, I want to say up front that the design of this building was slaved over by the leadership team for months to ensure that we got the maximum amount of space for the minimum amount of money. And before we even began the project to build this building, they gave away $25,000 that we had saved up to our mission partner in Haiti in order to ensure that that new building didn't take our focus off of service. That's why we call it a ministry center and not a church. We are not in the church. We are the church. And so we're very careful to call this building a ministry center. But the reality is we're sitting in a church building. Now, similarly, the New Testament clearly does communicate that those who serve the church in a full-time capacity are entitled to receive payment from the church for their efforts. But the reality is we have plenty of full-time church professionals here. Furthermore, there is no issue at any point taken with scripture, or taken in Scripture with talented people using their gifts as a part of church services. And we certainly have great services that from the outside looking in may feel like performances. And there's nothing wrong with kids' programs or serving as a part of our outreach and service ministries. There's nothing wrong or evil about those things. We certainly have our programs here. Again, there's nothing wrong or evil with those things. But my concern is this. I worry that we can very easily see these things as the necessary components of what it means to do church. That we can very easily look at these things and see these as the necessary elements for what it takes to achieve and to complete the purpose of God for the church and the world. We have to have them. And I think the Bible very clearly indicates a very simple design for what is actually necessary for the church to accomplish God's purpose for it in the world. You may be new to G&G or perhaps new to church in general, and if you are, you're probably asking, well then, J.D., what is the purpose of the church? Well, in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us very clearly. Look at what he said. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. I want you to circle that word, make that phrase, make disciples. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to take this message that I've given you, and I want you to go out into the world, and I want you to make other followers of me. That's what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus. I want you to go and make disciples Get this, of, circle the phrase, all nations. So I want you to go out into the world, and you as a church family, I want you to develop other followers of Christ in every nation of the world. 
baptizing them, he says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and circle this phrase, teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Because that is what a follower does. When a follower, a disciple of Jesus, comes into existence, what they begin to do is to obey what Jesus said. And he says, I want you as a church to go out into the world and I want you to make disciples. So that is the purpose of the church, to make disciples. This is is it, guys, right here. The, The purpose of the church is to make disciples from every nation, from every language, and from every people group. That is what the church is here to do. Which brings us back to the questions which we began with at the start of this lesson. Namely, what is necessary for the church to do what Christ has called it to do? Or perhaps more appropriately, who is necessary? What and who is necessary for the church to do what God has called it to do in the world? For the answer to that, I want to take us to one of the coolest stories in the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 4, verse, we're going to begin at verse 1, and there's a little backstory that you need to know. So, so here's what's going on. Jesus was in a region of Israel at that time known as Judea. All right, I'm going to bring a map up here on the screen. Um, and Judea is, is, is the southern part of what was, what was known as the nation or the kingdom of Israel at that time. So, so Judea is this area in the south right? And Jesus is down there, and he's begun this ministry, and he's begun to get pretty popular. He's, be, he's baptizing people. He's, he's beginning to call them into relationship with him, and, and he's building up quite a crowd. And, and down in Judea is Jerusalem, which was the capital, the, the religious and cultural and political center of the nation. And there were these Pharisees, this group of religious leaders that, that lived in Jerusalem and that operated out of Jerusalem, and they saw themselves as, as kind of the overseers of the purity of the Jewish religion. So anytime a new rabbi or a new teacher showed up on the scene, they wanted to assess his teaching. So these guys find out how they, these guys find out that Jesus is in the process of doing all this teaching, and he's baptizing people, and he's getting pretty popular. Look at this. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, understand, this would, this would be a big deal, because John was a big deal. He was considered by most of the common people to be a prophet. He was hugely popular, and he had he had, had a, a baptism ministry before Jesus began his and so, so Jesus was somebody they were clearly going to be keeping their eye on because he's getting really popular. So Jesus hears that the Pharisees heard that he was gaining and baptizing more than John. So he leaves Judea to go back to, ja- to Galilee. I want to bring that map back up here. And, and, and what we'll see is he, he's, he's leaving from the southern region of Judea. And he's going back up north to Galilee Um, Many of you know that Nazareth was where Jesus was from. A little further north and over by the Sea of Galilee, which you see there, was Capernaum, which became his kind of home base of operations. And so so Jesus is going to go back up north because he wants to, to create some space between him and the Pharisees. 
He knows that the pressure is going to ramp up if he stays in the south, and so he decides to move back north to just give everybody some breathing room and for him to be able to go about his ministry unimpeded. In verse 4, it says this, Now he had to go through Samaria. Now this is interesting. This is really important, and we've got to understand this. Samaria was in the middle. It was a region of Israel that was full of, of a group of people that the Jews considered half-breeds. Now, let me explain that just a little bit. So, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire swept in to Israel and took out what was known as the Northern Kingdom. And, and it, was, it was basically centered around Samaria. And they took out a bunch of these Jews and brought them into what was known as exile. So they moved a bunch of the Jews out, and then they moved a bunch of other people groups that they had, that they had conquered in. So there's this odd mixture of people, and when you get an odd mixture of people, you get an odd mixture of religions. And so what had happened in Samaria over time is these Jewish people that had been left after the exile and all of these other people that moved in during the exile began to intermarry and all of that kind of stuff. And all the, their religion began to, to mold together into this new form, this off form of Judaism. And so the Jews hated these people. And there's some other backstory that we don't have time to explain, but basically the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was not good. They hated one another. And it's interesting that Jesus said he ha- or the Bible says Jesus had to go through Samaria because that doesn't really actually make sense. You see most self-respecting Jews would not walk through Samaria for any reason. There were actually two routes around it. If you were going north from Judea to Galilee, oftentimes you would go up the side of the Dead Sea, cross the Jordan River, which is the river that goes between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and they would go north on the east side of the Jordan River and back into Galilee. They would literally walk around Samaria. It was a purity ritual, effectively. I don't want to walk through that area of the country because those people are not cool. So I'm going to avoid them entirely. I'll make my trip twice as long if I have to, to ensure that I don't have to deal with those people. There was another route. You could actually walk west from Judea to the Mediterranean Sea and hug the coastline as you walked up. But the average Jew would not walk through Samaria. And yet the text says he had to go through Samaria. What is that about? We've already seen that geographically he did not have to go through Samaria. So what What's going on? You see, there was somebody he had to meet. So he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, some scholars believe he walked upwards of 20 miles this morning, or that morning already, and it's about noon when he arrives. So he sits down by this well because he's tired. He's literally worn out. And then the Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus does something absolutely shocking. He looks at her and says, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is tired, alone, thirsty, and worn out. And so when the Samaritan woman walks up, he asks for a drink. 
because there's nobody else to get him a drink. And she's already going to be drawn well from the water, so he's like, or water from the well, so he's going to be like, hey, just give me a drink. And she looks at him like, she's, like he's crazy. The Samaritan woman said to him, Sir, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I mean, she, she's able to tell that he's a Jew, probably because of his distinctive clothing. Jews wore clothing with tassels that nobody else around them did. It was, it was a distinctive mark of being a Jew. And so she noticed very quickly that he was Jew, and she says, no, you, you, you can't ask me for a drink. You guys don't ask us for anything. You don't even walk, I mean, you're already weird because you're walking through our country. You, never, you guys never do that. And you're going to sit here and drink our water? You guys don't do that. You see, most Jews wouldn't walk through the country, and most Jews wouldn't drink their water, and any Jewish man with one ounce of concern for his reputation would never, ever, ever, I repeat, never talk to a Samaritan woman in public. This is a complete no-no. Which brings us to the first thing that is necessary for the purpose of the church to be fulfilled, and that is imperfect people. The first thing necessary for the church to accomplish its purpose in the world is imperfect people. You see, from a Jewish perspective, this Samaritan woman was the last person you would expect Jesus to talk to, much less use. Number one, she was a Samaritan. Her religion was all wrong. Her background was all wrong. So just being a Samaritan, she already had two strikes against her, basically. But then you add on top of that the fact that she was a woman. Women weren't even considered reliable witnesses in court in the Jewish culture at this time. So this was the most absolutely imperfect person that Jesus could pick to carry his message. But what you and I will see this morning is that he did it anyway. And you may be asking yourself, J.D., why is it important? Why, is, why are imperfect people so important for the fulfilling of the purposes of God for the church? Well, the simple reality is that imperfect people are the only kind of people who exist. As much as every Jew looked down on the Samaritans, in reality, no Jew was better than any Samaritan. The Bible goes to painstaking detail, sometimes, to be frank with you, to the level of like TMI, right? To show just how messed up and sinful and flawed many of the people that God chose to use, most of them Jews, by the way, were, were, were flawed. And this should be great news because all of us could easily be, be described in the same way. It means that all of us have the same opportunity to be used by God just as she did, despite whatever lies in our past. And we will see in a moment that there was a lot in her past. But fulfilling the purpose of the church requires more than just imperfect people because those imperfect people need something. It's not, it's not just like, oh, hey, you're an imperfect person, make a disciple. Like, there's something you need in order to be able to do that. And we see it very clearly. They need to be told the truth. Imperfect people need to be told the truth 
about a number of very important things, and we will see them borne out very graphically in the rest of the conversation that Jesus has with this woman. So she says, why would you ask me for a drink? So she looks at him, he's like, why would you ask me for a drink? And Jesus says this, this is fascinating. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you for a drink, in other words, he was saying, if you had, if you had any clue who you're talking to, <laughs> if you had any clue who you were talking to, you, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be letting me ask you for a drink. You'd be asking me, and I would give you living water. Now, that phrase, living water, is, is an interesting phrase that Jesus uses on multiple occasions. And it indicates salvation, right? The idea of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us. In short, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who can give you life. You see, the first truth that imperfect people need to be told is the truth about God's offer of life. Because here's the reality, guys. Jesus is offering her an opportunity not to stay stuck in the life she's in. He's offering her a chance to be a part of the story that God is telling. He's giving her the chance to experience the life that God created her to have both in this world and in the next. And if you're in this room today, God has extended that same offer of real life, both in this world and in the next, to every single one of us. You see, for us to actually accomplish the purpose of the church, we have to be able and we have to be willing to be a people who know the truth that there is an offer of life for every person on the planet through Jesus and the reality is the only offer of life that actually leads to life is found in Jesus. John 14, 6 says this, I am the way. These are Jesus' words. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the first thing that imperfect people need to know is that God has, an ex- has extended an offer of life to every imperfect person, and the only way to access that offer of life is to believe in Christ. As the Word says, salvation is found in no other name. But, but see, the woman doesn't exactly get it. There's part of her that's thinking, is he, is he still talking about water? And there's part of her that's like, I don't really know what he's talking about now. So she's a little confused. And so she says to him this. She's like, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Some reports have that well being almost 100 feet deep. How how are you going to get this water? How are you going to get this living water if if you don't have anything to draw with? And I'm your only hope for that. But then she says this. Because she's kind of getting that he's talking about a little something different than actual water, but she doesn't know exactly what he's talking about. So she says this, and I think this is fascinating. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than the one who gave us this well and drank from it himself, and so also did his sons and his livestock? You see, Jacob was Abraham's grandson, one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, and, one, and, and the father of the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. 
He was a towering figure in the Old Testament, and he had dug this well approximately 1,700 years before Christ walked the earth. So she's like, living water, huh? Really? Who do you think you are? You Jacob? Jacob's been feeding us water out of this well for 1,700 years. Who are you? Really? You're going to give me living water? I've been alive for as long as I've been alive, and I've been drinking water out of this well, and Jacob gave it to us, not you. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's saying that normal water only satisfies for a little bit. All right, go home, sweetheart. You'll be back in a few hours because <laughs> you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, what he's saying is normal water is only going to satisfy you for a little bit, but a relationship with me, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, will create in you a relationship that satisfies you for your whole life right on into eternity. Nothing can take away the joy and the hope and the peace that is available to you if you have me. And the woman says back to him, Sir, well, give me this water then, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. There's, there's a sarcasm in this that I think is really kind of fun. She's kind of like, Okay, buddy, if you can give me water that won't let me ever get thirsty again, and I don't have to trudge back out here and get water every day, then hand it over. I'll be happy to have it. But nothing prepared her for what was coming next. So she says, give me the water if you got it. Come on, I'll drink it. Now I won't have to keep coming out here, meet weird people like you. Okay. Jesus says, all right, go home. Get your husband. You come back, we'll all talk about it. She's like, I don't have a husband. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I, like I see this almost sparkle come to Jesus' eye at this moment. He's like, is that right? You're right. You don't have a husband, do you? Because you've had five of them, sweetheart. And the one you're living with right now, he isn't your husband. He basically looks this woman in the eye and without ever having known her for more than five minutes, tells her that she is a serial adulteress. Not worthy of a marriage, much less the offer of God. And here's the truth, guys. The second thing that imperfect people need to be told the truth about is to be told the truth about their sin. You see, I think most of us really like the idea of that, that imperfect people need to be told the truth about God offering life to all of us and God offering eternal hope to all of us. And that feels really good, and we really, really like it. 
We want that offer of life that God loves us, that he's, he's, he wants us to be forever with him, and that's great. And I think all of us feel really comfortable going out into the world and sharing that hope. And guys, that truly is a good thing. But when Jesus is trying to reach somebody with the message of his love, that includes a discussion about their sin. Why? Because we're all sinners. And in order to know what it's like to receive the offer of life that God has available for us, we have to own and understand all the ways that we have chosen sin and death. You see, the core message of Christianity is that Christ is offering a way for sinners to be saved from their sins. This is not just, hey, happy you get to live forever in the beautiful, cloud-like, rainbow-like love of God. Is that ultimately true? Yeah. But there's a reality of our sin that has to be dealt with first. Jesus was offering this woman the living water of salvation, but to receive it, he also had to deal with the reality of her sin. And guys, the truth is, for for imperfect people to accomplish the purposes of God, to make disciples, we have to be willing not only to deal with our own sin, but to be willing to help others with whom we are sharing the gospel deal with theirs. This is so critical. We will not be a church that effectively achieves the purposes of God in our world unless we have a right mindset about sin and a willingness to confront it in ourselves and in those we are trying to reach. You see, Jesus is our model here, and we can't just blow this off by saying, well, we'll love them and that will be enough. It apparently wasn't enough for the Son of God. So why would we assume that that will be enough for us? You see, the effect of the challenge to this woman's lifestyle is immediate and profound. Look at what happens. She immediately recognizes that this can't be just another guy. How did he do what he just did? How did he tell me what I have done? He's never met me. He doesn't know me. She looks at him and says, sir... I can see that you're a prophet. She immediately recognizes that this must be somebody who has an impossible relationship with God because he met her and three minutes later he's telling her her life story without her ever revealing it. That's impossible. How are you doing that? You must be from God. She's coming to grips with the fact that Jesus isn't just some regular dude that happened along the well. But notice what immediately happens after this. Notice what immediately, she she asks a question, and it's an interesting one because it's about worship. Look at what she says. She says, our ancestors, so so she says, okay, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is where they were at the time. But you Jews, you claim that the place that we have to worship is down in Jerusalem. So which one is it? Now, scholars are kind of divided on this. Some think that she's trying to change the subject. 
Because Jesus kind of trained a big old spotlight on her and her past and her adultery and all that kind of stuff. So, so, so she's feeling the heat. And so many scholars think this is kind of a way to draw Jesus into this pseudo-religious, political-type debate to get, to get the spotlight off of her. But just looking at this passage, I, I kind of want to give her a little more credit than that. See, I believe it's possible to look at this passage and see that rather trying, than trying to catch Jesus in this hot topic and, and, and trade debates about where the right place of worship is, I think that what's actually happening is she's beginning to catch, you know what, maybe this guy is the truth. Maybe what this guy's saying to me is the truth, and if so, then I had better figure out how to worship correctly. There's part of me that thinks that instead of trying to get Jesus into this debate, she's literally interested in knowing how to worship God correctly because this, this guy standing in front of her is clearly a prophet. So, so what is he going to tell me about where the right place to worship is? What is he going to tell me about where the, where the right place and the right way to serve this God that is offering me life? I think she's asking a legitimate question to figure out what she has to do. And this leads us to the third thing that imperfect people need to be told the truth about in order to fulfill the purposes of God, and that is imperfect people need to be told the truth about false worship. We need to be told the truth about our false worship. Notice the implication of her question. Jews say Jerusalem. My culture says up on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which one is it? Because there can only be one. See, I think this is something our culture struggles with. I think this is something that many in the church struggle with. You see, we want to tell everybody that their religion is correct. We Americans want to believe that every form of worship is okay as long as it's done with sincerity. But her question assumes that there is a right place to worship and a wrong place to worship, and she wants to know where it is. And you got to hear this. Jesus' response assumes the same thing. Jesus' answer leaves no question that there is a right worship and that everything else is wrong. Look at him. Look at what he says. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What's he saying? He's saying the place isn't the important thing. Jerusalem Mount Gerizim, neither is the point. There is coming a time when worship won't be tied to a place. Fascinating for the discussion we had earlier, right? There's coming a time where worship will not take place in a place. But then notice what he says to her. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship, in other words, the Jews. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, you Samaritans do not have the correct worship. 
you have been mistaken for centuries because your worship has been concocted with other religious practices from all of these other different peoples that moved into the area of the world in which you live. He's saying it's from the Jews that salvation will come, basically, him. He's saying through the Jews, and and he'll tell her in just a minute that it's him. It's from the Jews that salvation will come. He's calling her current religious practices false and unable to save her. There is no question, guys. But he goes on. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is crystal clear here. God wants worshipers who will worship him not in a place, not tied to a particular location, but instead through the spirit. In other words, through the Holy Spirit living inside of them and in truth. In other words, in the right way. There is a true worship, and we have to know what it is in order to worship God in spirit and in truth. God is clearly saying there is a true worship, there is a false worship. There is a right worship, there is a cultural worship. And the Spirit of God guides us into right worship of God. In effect, Jesus is saying you have to give up. He's saying to this woman, you have to give up everything you have ever known from a religious perspective in order to have the living water because your current religious practices will keep you from having it. And guys, for us to be effective at accomplishing the purpose of the church, we have to be willing to tell people the truth, that there is a right worship and there is a wrong worship. And the difference between the two is clearly shown in God's word. There is no other way to worship God in spirit and in truth because Jesus says that's the way God wants to be worshiped and he gets to decide. Now, the woman is challenged by this, as you might imagine. She's looking at her whole life, and he's telling her, that life can't save you. And she's like, I don't know what to do with all this. And so she says, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. Now, 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 now stop right there. How does she know that? The Jews would look at her and say, you're some half-breed Jew practicing a half-breed Jewish religion. How on earth would she possibly know that? Well, what's fascinating is that the Samaritans, in the process of adding all of these other religions to and all these other idol-worshiping elements into their religious faith, continued to view the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as kind of authoritative for life and behavior. And we see in Genesis chapter 3, that God promised that one day a seed of the woman, a human being, was going to come into the world and take care of sin and death. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that Moses says, someday there's going to be a prophet like me, except better and bigger and greater, and he's going to come into the world and he's going to tell you guys how to live. And so the Old Testament, those first five books of the Old Testament, tell that a Messiah is going to come. And so she would have at least some inkling as to what that was, even though she was a part of a mixed-up 
mishmash of religion. And so she says, one of these days, the Messiah is going to come, and I'm sure at that point he'll tell everything that we need to know. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, I, the very one speaking to you, am he. Here I am. Ain't nobody else coming. It's me. Which is the final thing that imperfect people need to be told the truth about. And that is they need to be told the truth about the true Savior. We need to be told the truth about the true Savior. I mean, think about the ground that we've covered this morning. The message has really been very simple when you think about it. For God so loved this world full of imperfect people, that he sent his son into the world to tell them the truth. To tell them the truth that he loves them and wants to offer them life both now and forevermore. To tell them the truth that we are sinners who frequently worship ourselves and other created things rather than the creator God who gave us life. To tell us the truth that there is only one way that that problem gets fixed. If we believe and place our hope in the one true Savior who came to live a perfect life, die a sinner's death on our behalf, and be raised from the dead, offering us hope and a relationship with God. And Jesus looks this woman dead in the eye, just as he is looking at all of us today, and he's saying, it's me. It's me. I am the one. I am the one true Savior. Apart from me, there is no hope. There's no one else coming. There is no one else who can take care of your sin problem. It's me. And this is the exact message that God has given us as a church to share with the world. This is the message that God has given us to use to accomplish his purpose. If we want to be the church that God has formed us to be, if we want to reach the redemptive potential in this area of the world that we have, then what it takes is a large group of imperfect people just like us who have been told the truth about God's offer of life, who have been given the opportunity to face and repent of our false worship and sin, and who have been given the opportunity to know and believe in the one true Savior. And then there's one more thing. There's one more thing. Look at the end of the story. Chapter, or verse 28, I'm sorry. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the people came out of town and made their way toward him. This is the final piece. What does the church really need to follow Jesus? What does the church really need to accomplish the purpose that God has placed upon it in the world? What does our church family really need? We need a bunch of imperfect people told the truth about God's offer of life, who have been told the truth about their sin and false worship, armed with a knowledge of the Savior and His Word, sent to tell others. Sent to tell the truth to others. That's what we need. 
This woman, having been offered life, been confronted with the truth about her current situation, recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and then bolts off into town to tell everyone that she knows that she may just have found the Savior of the world. And I wonder, I wonder, do we do that? Do we do that? You know, I struggle sometimes to think that we do. Because many of us, myself very much included, walk in this place full of professionals with great performances, complete with great programs every week. And yet, many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't go running into the world with the message of this Savior who promised us life forever in Him. And yet this woman had none of those things. She had no place. In fact, Jesus told her that the only place that she knew how to worship in was not even the place that she had to worship in. She had no place. She had no professionals. She had no programs. There were no performances. And yet this woman turned her village upside down in a matter of two days because she could not contain the truth of Christ inside of her without sharing it with others. Just look for a moment at the powerful conclusion to this story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, circle this phrase, because of the woman's testimony. Because of the woman going into town and saying, I just met a guy who I'd never met before, and he told me everything I ever did, they come out of town to hear Jesus, and they believe in him because of her testimony. She was the one that got sent. Jesus didn't go into town. She went into town. The imperfect, immoral, Samaritan woman goes into town and gets all the other people to come to Jesus. It wasn't the other way around. Jesus didn't go to them. She brought them to him. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers, and they said to the woman, we no longer believe just Underline that word. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Isn't that just how it works? Isn't it, though? We go into the world with our testimony, we go into the world with what we believe. And they may or may not come. But when they do come and they hear Jesus for himself, they'll say, now we don't believe just because you believe. Now we believe because we've heard for ourselves. All it took to make disciples out of a whole village of people was one imperfect person told the truth and sent to tell the truth to others. Guys, I got to be honest. 
I love that we get to meet in this great place. I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool place. I love the great service and ministry programs that, that have become a part of the fabric of GNG. I love our times of worship together. And frankly, I can't lie to you, I love being one of those church professionals. But if we ever forget that all it actually takes to fulfill the purpose of the church in the world to make disciples is that imperfect people are told the truth and sent to tell the truth to others, then we have already lost. If we forget for a moment that it's not about places and and programs and professionals and performances, but instead it's about imperfect people told the truth, sent to tell the truth to others, then we will not succeed. All it takes is one imperfect person told the truth and sent to tell the truth to make disciples in your office or school. All it takes is one imperfect person told the truth and sent to tell the truth to make disciples on your sports team or band. All it takes is one imperfect person told the truth and sent to tell the truth to make disciples in your neighborhood. All it takes is one imperfect person told the truth, sent to tell the truth to fight an addiction, to stop a family from shredding apart, to bless a child, to save a life, to meet a need. Because that's what happens when disciples make disciples. As we are all the woman at the well. Perfectly flawed. Living a life beneath our calling. But we have all been told the truth. The question is, what will we do with it now? Will we sit back and watch our village live and die without the hope that comes from Christ? Or will we be that group of imperfect people who have been told the truth and who feel sent to tell the truth to others because the reality is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you're in this room today, you too have been sent. You're the one he's sending. I'm the one he's sending. Look around. Look around. We already have more than we will ever need. We already have way more than that Samaritan woman had. She had no place. She had no pros. She had no performances or programs. We have all of those things. We have more than we will ever need. Because what the Bible says we need is imperfect people who have been told the truth, just willing to go tell the truth. That's all we have to have. And so the question before us today as we leave is this, what will we do with what we have. We've been given more than she ever was.
were called to do with it what Christ called her to do. Father, we come to you now thanking you for this day. We recognize that we are imperfect people and before you, if it were not for your son, we would have no hope, no forgiveness, no relief from the sin that drives us. But Father, with you, we have hope. And so now we trust you, Father, and we put ourselves in your hands and we simply ask that you would make disciples through this imperfect bunch of people who have been told the truth about your love and life available to us, our sin and false worship, and the true Savior that has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. May we launch ourselves into this world as she did to reach people who are far from you, other imperfect people who need you just as we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.